What is thy bidding, my master? The trans-surgery enterprise is now a $300 million per annum growth industry. I have felt it. I've essentially been banned from Twitter. How is that possible? A few days ago, I penned an irritated tweet in response to one of the latest happenings on the increasingly heated culture war front. In response to the decision of an actress, actor named Ellen Elliot Page, I am employing this awkward and impossible naming style because it is now apparently mandatory and am probably doing it wrong nonetheless, as you're doing it wrong is the whole point of what has been made mandatory. He's just a boy. Up yours, woke moralists. We'll see who cancels who. All right. I am Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. Uh, I am joined, as always, by our trusty graphic designer, J. Andrew World, and by super producer, uh, union organizer, man about town, uh, Jacob Appet. How are you guys doing tonight? Muted. Uh, I'm doing good. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing good. I was waiting for Andy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so uh, we have... Um, I, I wish we could actually have a link uh, tonight, but we do have uh, we do have big news. Uh, the tickets are going to go on sale for the Los Angeles live show on Friday. Uh, it's going to be at the Terragram Ballroom in LA. It is that is going to be a um, that is going to be a GTAA slash This Is Revolution slash Left Reckoning event. Uh, so uh, you can you know it's going to be me and Jason Miles and David Griscom and uh, various other people you know from the uh, GTA Extended Universe, uh, and as uh, and the guests are going to include uh, our friends Anne Sparian and Nando Vila, uh, so and obviously many more people to be announced. Uh, so it uh, it should be uh, should be a very good time. All right. So we are, um, yeah, we'll have, uh, this time we actually should be able to include a link uh, to the tickets. We put out the podcast version on Friday. Uh, it, was, uh, it was an empty promise last week. Uh, there were various details to be worked out. But uh, we can do it now. Uh, so meanwhile, for tonight uh, at 9 o'clock, I am going to be speaking to uh, William Paris from the What's Left of Philosophy podcast about uh, his, uh, his work on utopianism. And you know, both popular and academic uh, context should be a really interesting conversation. Um, and uh, before that, uh, we are going to talk about a couple things. Uh, so, uh, one of them has to do well is the subject of an article that I wrote for uh, for Jacobin this week. It actually uh, came out yesterday, uh, called um, "Ben Shapiro Thinks uh, That Quote Marxism uh, Can't Work in America." Unquote. He is very confused. So uh, we are going to watch uh, the video in which he, uh, he exhibits this confusion, and that should be a lot of fun. But as Pink Floyd so wisely teach us, uh, you, um, 
you know, if you don't eat your meat, you can't have your pudding. So uh, we uh, we do have we do have other pre-put-in activities uh, to uh, to get to tonight, um, and I want to start by talking about somebody I just mentioned because she's going to be at the uh, at the the LA live show, uh, and um, and who's also comes up in what you're about to listen to, who is our great friend Anna Kasparian. Uh, so. Because of actually, it's really a shame that people didn't want, you know, that the main thing people aren't watching isn't the uh, discussion I had with her on this show last week, which is like the sort of, I think, obviously, the, uh, the, the best version of, of, uh, of uh, what she has to say about this stuff. But some of the, some of the recent, um, you know, reporting on, you know, street crime and related issues on the Young Turks has caused a lot of controversy on Twitter. And um, I do want to say a couple things to set it up, but you know, but what I, but what I'm going to play for you in a minute is a discussion I had a couple days ago on the college show. Uh, so the uh, the guest was another Ben uh, Ben Spielberg, and I uh, I had that Ben on because um, I want to talk to him about the Inflation Reduction Act, which is indeed what we did you know, for like the first half hour of that discussion. But as you're about to hear in a minute, uh, in a very unplanned way, right, you know, because of um, I had, uh, I'd seen him get into it with Anna about some of the crime stuff uh, a couple hours before we were supposed to record. Uh, and, you know, and and I had stuff I wanted to ask him about about that. So I kind of asked him, hey, would it be okay with you? I know this is what you're kidding to you know, what you uh, were planning to talk about, right? But would it be okay with you if we, we got into it a little bit? And, you know, he's a very, uh, very accommodating person. I said, yeah, no, that's that's totally fine, right? You know, so we actually had what I think was a really good discussion about it, you know, and, and I think a very um, good faith and, uh, and very substance-heavy uh, discussion about it. So I was really happy about that. Um, but I, I think, uh, well, actually, let, let me just let me just say this. So, um, I think if you watched the episode last week, you have some idea of, of what all that was about. Um, if you, you know, didn't watch the episode last week and you're not on Twitter, and by the way, uh, if, if, uh, if you're not on Twitter and you have no idea this stuff is going on, you've made just unfathomably better life choices than anybody you see on the screen, and, uh, and you should keep it up, and I'm very jealous of you. But, um, you know, you... Uh, that you don't, uh, you know, you don't know, uh, that you don't know what's going on. You know, I think the beginning of the calling conversation probably gives you most of the context uh, that you need for that. But, you know, basically there's an issue here about how the left uh, should be thinking and talking about um, sort of, you know, public concerns about rising crime rates, what that, you know, how that relates to longstanding left concerns about mass incarceration and criminal justice reform, um, related issues like mental health and, you know, addiction services, uh, you know, homelessness, right? You know, there's, there's like a whole cocktail of late capitalist dysfunction, you know, that gets, that gets mixed together in, uh, in this conversation. Uh, but, you know, and, and I think that, um, you know, I think most people who have various takes on how we should think and talk about this do, I think, agree on most of the policy stuff, right? I, I'm not, 
you know, I'm not saying necessarily a hundred percent, right. I think particularly, you know, when you get down to the level of like local prosecutors who um, like progressive prosecutors who are trying to do their best with the extremely limited set of tools that are available to them once you're downstream enough from those original problems, right. You know, all those dysfunctions of, you know, late capitalism, we just mentioned that you're dealing with like the tool set available to a local prosecutor. And I think, um, you know, and I think there, you know, there's some real dilemmas and, you know, and, and, and I think there is room for criticizing, you know, some decisions that people have made, but, you know, whatever you think about whether like this DA in, uh, in this place made the right call about something or not, I think I'm broader, more, um, uh, larger scale issues, right. About, um, you know, demilitarizing the police about, um, about, uh, having, you know, like a more, uh, humane and rehabilitation focused, uh, prison system. You know, I think there's, I think there's probably much more agreement, um, than not. And, and so I was thinking about, you know, what, if anything, I wanted to say about this that would add to what I say in the sort of impromptu friendly debate, you know, with, um, with Ben Spielberg that we're about to listen to. And I think the only thing that I would add at this point, you know, is, is this, right. That, um, and this is like a little fuzzy, right. Apologies in advance. Right. I mean this, and it's, it's like a little bit, um, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, maybe this is maybe this is a little bit too hippie-ish of me, right? But like, I, I guess the vibes worry me, right? Let's just let's just put it that way. Let's just lead all the way into the hippiness and say that the vibes worry me. You know that they, I think that um, what I get when I look at a lot of this discussion, right? When I sort of abstract from the who said what about who and you know all of that stuff, right? You know that they is a real sense that after the defeats of 2020 and, you know, for those of our listeners in Britain, 2019, right. You know, but uh, particularly in America in 2020 uh, and, and all of the, you know, horrible stuff that happened, right. The, the, the defeat of the second Sanders candidacy, COVID, whatever. Um, and the sort of rise of like a really, you know, militantly reactionary um, sort of post-Trumpist right wing, right? That I feel like a lot of leftists are acting like they're hunkering down for a period of like extended defeat. And that a lot of the way we're talking to each other about this stuff reflects that. Because I think that when people are, you know, in a optimistic frame of mind, they actually think that some real victories are possible on this stuff. Then instead of sort of being paranoid about who's like not really on the right side or whatever, like I think people are going to be much more inclined to, um, to try to, to focus on how they can sort of pitch our message at people who share the sorts of concerns about some of the stuff that like somebody like Anna is articulated in the in the discussion right so that's my that's my meta vibe worry and i think that's the only extra thing i have to add is there anything either of you guys want to throw in i i saw you across the bar and your vibes weren't uh <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, sorry, uh, that's all I could. Think if of if some if someone says that to you at a bar, there's like a ninety five percent chance they look like Andy, in my opinion. If somebody, I, we saw you from across the bar, and uh, we really liked your vibe. Um, yeah, no, I, I had some thoughts on how to Twitter transformed yeah. this conversation, but maybe should we check out the the debate yeah, first yeah. before getting into yeah, some of that? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, we're probably not going to watch the entire thing right now, right? But let's 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 watch a big substantive chunk. Give people a, give people a sense of the discussion. All right. So I want to um, you know I want to be while we while we still have a decent amount of time, uh, but. I want to switch gears right now and ask you about something else that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't planning on talking about before. In fact, I don't, I don't know that I've seen you particularly talk about this before, but like oh, a couple hours. Great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, a couple hours ago, I, I happened to, to see an exchange on, uh, on Twitter that you were involved in. Um, and, um, and, it was uh, it was with Anna Kasparian, and it was it was about uh, criminal justice reform, basically, and um, and then uh, you know I like it's again it's a little bit too uh, you know a little bit too germane to my interest not to ask about while I've got you on the phone. Sure. Yeah. No. I'm uh, cool. That sounds fun. Okay. Outstanding. All right. The, the starting point of uh, this discussion uh, was, um, you know, was a video that Anna had done on on the Young Turks and your objections to that. But I, I don't want to go too granular to start with because I think um, for anybody who hasn't like watched the video and followed all the ins and outs of this, it's just not going to mean anything. <laughs> so. Uh, so I, I I do want to maybe just kind of start out with the the broader um, the broader issue, right? Uh, so I think that I think there's a concern that I know Anna has that that I I tend to share actually about uh, left messaging on on some of the stuff about uh, criminal justice reform because I think. Um, I'm sure this isn't completely true. I think there were some like maybe policy disagreements that even came up a little bit in that exchange. But my suspicion is that everybody involved in this discussion would probably agree on most of the policy stuff, right? In other words, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody in the discussion is like, I don't know, pro mandatory minimums or, you know, uh, you know, against banning no knock raids or anything like that. Um, but, uh, but I think that, um, but I think there's a, there's a concern that, that can arise about how, uh, how we talk about this, right? Because, you know, I, I think that certainly if you look at the, at the polling data, right, I think that there's, there's, an ev- there's a lot of evidence that, uh, most working class people, includes, including most working class people of color, uh, take concerns about crime and rising crime rates and all of that uh, pretty seriously, right? You know that this is this is like a this is a real issue, you know, for um, you know for a, a lot of um, a lot of people, right? You know that the um, that uh, you know could these kinds of concerns about public safety that um, that you know I mean are um, you know I, I think you and I would say. You know, it's sort of downstream of, of a, a brutal uh, economic order, right? You know that that leads right, to right. Uh, that that leads to all of this, right? But it's uh, but the symptom, you know, the symptom itself is very real, right? And there's a um, 
and and I think there's a there's a way that there are a lot of ways that I at least see uh, people who I generally agree with talk about this stuff that I find kind of unhelpful, right? Like that uh, that you know I'll see people react to people talking about you know crime rates, uh, you know upticks in crime rates by saying, uh, oh yeah, well it's still way lower than it was in the 1990s, which you know I I think. Um, I, I think sounds very dismissive in a very unhelpful way. Uh, there's, uh, I, you know, I, I think that some of the slogans people have used, I mean, ranging from like some of the the abolished stuff that like DSA passed, you know, back in like 2017 to um, up through, um, you know, even like, you know, even like the the defund slogan, which is a little bit ambiguous about what it means. You know, there are different ways to read that, but I think it. I, I think it it hits a lot of persuadable uh, voters the wrong way, right? Because because it sort of sounds like austerity, and you know you're just kind of on your own. Um, so so I, I I guess like one one entry point into the discussion would be like how much do you think those are like you know legitimate concerns, or like how much do you think that like the the way that the left talks about this stuff right now is the way that we should talk about it. Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, I think I'm often hesitant to critique things like defund the police or abolition. And personally, you know, I would say that I do believe in police abolition. Um, But and it's partially just because I think oftentimes and I know that this is not the case with you, obviously, but I think Mm -hmm. that oftentimes there's a critiquing of progressive or social justice messaging that's actually a critique of the goal that's veiled as a messaging critique. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what I appreciate about people in the abolition movement and in the defund movement is that they've really brought this issue into the public consciousness in a way that's hard to ignore. Um, and I think there can sometimes be value in using kind of inflammatory language, you know, like abolish ice, I think is a good example of mm-hmm. something again, you could, you could argue it turns people off, but it also really, I think, brought to the forefront a lot of issues that needed to, to be discussed in a different way. Um, and I think there have been some wins also, if you look at a pol- from a policy standpoint at, at local jurisdictions, dealing with people who have used some of that language, some of them have responded in terms of actually reallocating portions of their budget or uh, rethinking their relationship with, with police forces. So um, I think I'm a little less critical of the wording, but what I do agree on and what I think is legitimate is there's a real concern here that people have, which is their safety. Like you want to walk down the street and you want to know that I am not going to be assaulted and like feel comfortable walking down the street. Um, and I think people also want to know that if something does happen to me, I want to have somebody to call. And I think the, the problem in my view with how we've often uh-huh. talked about these issues as a social justice movement is it's focused largely on explaining the very true point that the police and the criminal legal system don't tend to make us safer. There's a lot of research behind that. It's true that usually when you call the police, they don't really provide much help. Like all of that's true. And I think it's an important point to make, but it doesn't answer the question for somebody who's concerned about this stuff. And like you said, persuadable people of like, what do I do? Who do I call? 
how do I know that I'm going to feel safe? And I think you have to have a response to those sorts of questions if you really want people to be persuaded. It's not enough to just say the system that we have sucks and we need a totally different economic order. You need to say, well, here's what should be happening instead and here's what we can see. Because what you'll see when you do have those conversations, and I think like um, the the victims' rights movement, I don't love the word victim and I don't love the word criminal, mm-hmm. The victim rights movement, I think, is really interesting. And it's because like when you ask people who have been harmed by crime what they want to see, if you give them alternatives to incarceration, things like a restorative approach where they're involved in thinking through what the harm reparation method is, they tend to like that way better than like a draconian prison sentence. Not everybody, but like most people who have been harmed by crime, they don't just want you lock somebody away for life. And that's the end of the story. Um, they actually want something that actually helps repair what happened to them. So I really think there's got to be more of a focus on concrete solutions in these in these debates. I think it's super important to point out the problems with the narrative. And, you know, my issue with Anna's uh, uh, presentation and, and her uh, segment that she did was it really bought into these very uh, privileged defending tropes that you often see from people who oppose all of the policies that, you know, hopefully she does agree about many of the policies, but there was a lot of language and framing that really mirrors people who are opponents of this movement. So I think that people who recognize that there may be a problem with aspects of how sometimes we engage on this issue as social justice advocates just need to be really intentional and thoughtful about how we bring up and talk about that problem ourselves. Okay. Yeah. So that was really interesting. Uh, I'm glad you said the thing about criminals because that was actually the, the tweet that caught my eye this morning was, was when you, you objected to her, her using that word. I definitely want to talk about that, but, um, but you know, I, I think, uh, okay. So, I mean, just to, just to lay, some of my own cards on the on the table about this right i i think um you know i certainly think that we could have a i mean i'm 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 sympathetic you know i wouldn't claim to be anything like an expert on it but i'm you know from what i know about it i'm, I'm quite sympathetic to to some of the restorative justice stuff you talked about uh i had a good conversation on here with ryan lake about that a while back um i i think um you know, I certainly think that if it was, you know, done in combination with uh, moves towards a more economically equal society, so we wouldn't have, um, you know, people wouldn't be as spooked about crime in the uh, in the first place. Uh, I, I certainly think we could have like a vastly more sort of humane and rehabilitation focused, um, you know, criminal justice system um, without that leading to, you know, to really bad results right i mean i i think that um an analogy i think that annie even used somewhere in there i don't actually remember i watched the whole segment you're talking about i also talked to her about this on my you know the main show on youtube on on monday night so it's all kind of jumbled together but i'm, I'm pretty sure norway came up and you know one or both of those i don't remember um and you know and, and i do think that uh that that's a that's a good model right in other words like i think it's like good sort of real life proof that you could have a more humane and rehabilitation focused criminal justice system and also a much lower rate of violent crime than the United States, uh, you know, that you, you can have both, uh, at least given, um, at least given better, you know, material conditions, right. You'll know, lead into, to less crime. I'm, I'm completely down with all of that. 
but I, I guess um, one. Okay, so there's like the rhetoric part of the policy part, and I want to talk about both, and you know, and 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 um, you know, and, and I want to do it all, you know, in a uh, in a relatively uh, you know relatively concise way, or at least I'm really going to try. So uh, so let's, you know, on um, on the you know the rhetoric part. I mean, the the sort of concern I have about saying like, oh, don't call people, you know, don't call people who you know maybe you know, incarcerated for murder or rape or et cetera, uh, violent criminals, uh, I, I worry can be a little, you know, come off as a little tone, tone deaf, right? I mean, like, because people, you know, you sort of talked about privilege defending, but I mean, like the, um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, there, there is a certain sense in which, like, it is a privilege, uh, you know, it is a position of privilege to not really have to worry uh, about um, about street level violence, you know, in the way that you don't really have to worry about it that much uh, if you uh, if you live, you know, in a uh, in a middle class kind of neighborhood, you know, where and um, and there are, you know, again, so I, I worry about minimizing the concern, but I don't want to focus too much on that because I think that the, you know, the more interesting question may be is is on uh some of the policy goal stuff right because it's like look do i think we could get to norway absolutely uh do you know do i think that if we had a completely different economic system then like further down the line we could go even further in that direction yeah do i think that we could ever get to the point where uh you know you like it wouldn't make sense you know you like we talk about like police abolition or prison abolition, right? You know, that they, that, um, that there wouldn't be somebody that you would call in the instance of, you know, if, if, uh, if something violent happens, that there wouldn't be some mechanism to remove people who are, you know, who are violent uh, from society. I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical about that, frankly, even in a sort of like 23rd century, you know, full communism sort of, uh, sort of, sort of scenario. But like, I think the more, uh, can, would I, it... um, can I interject on, on sure, the rhetoric sure. point there before sure, you go sure. further on that? Just sure. because, yep. you know, I think the, the people who are violent and the, and the kind of violent criminals piece, I think are related in a way, just because what I would say is, people are more complex than that. So, and we have lots of people in our society who we don't label violent or violent criminals who perpetrate far more violence against others. I think you and I would probably agree about that, but you know, there are high level people who orchestrate violence against whole communities when they make policy decisions. Um, And then there are people who harm others, but because they live in areas that aren't particularly uh, policed, they sometimes don't uh, have their violence uh, result in prison time. Um, now, obviously, murder is a very extreme case, but even if you just look at kind of police officers involved in officer-involved shootings and people who might be uh, oftentimes lower income who have murdered somebody, uh, the way that we talk about those as a society is very different in a way that I do, I do think creates a problematic frame for the issue because police violence is still violence. So unless you're oh, yeah, walking I, around calling it, right. I, mean, and I, I know com- you don't I, disagree. I, I, I completely agree with that. Although one way to maybe sort of, um, you know, turn that around a little bit is that I think that, uh, I think that, uh, that cops who, uh, who shoot people without justification, you know, should be. Uh, too. 
yeah, I'd call them violent criminals too. And like, also to put an even finer point on that, I mean, I think it's, I think it's really important that we, that we imprison, right. Cops who, uh, who, you know, cops who are, uh, you know, engaged in unjustified, uh, shootings. Right. I mean, when, um, Aaron Wilson was, uh, was, was convicted, right. I mean, I wrote an article in, in Jacobin saying, you know, I mean, maybe it's kind of a hyperbolic headline cause it's a, it's a, very small victory right you know but that it the uh conviction was a victory for justice and democracy you know meaning that like i think that it's bad for democracy if state officials can get away with crimes and and not be punished right that the uh that um it's important that that you know it's important that 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 happened right uh i, I do want to if it's okay i do want to go back to something you said you said a few minutes ago because i i actually think yeah. it's like a re- a really interesting way to frame the discussion, which is that you use you sort of made an analogy to the uh, the abolish ice slogan, yeah. and um, and and I guess where I would see a disanalogy between abolish ice and abolish the police is that I find very often, and maybe this is unfair, this is anecdotal, right? But I find very often when I talk to people who do use slogans like abolish the police uh, that they um, that like some of those follow-up questions that I think you were rightly raising earlier, right? You know, about how that plays out in practice. Oftentimes it doesn't really feel like, you know, people have some things to say about it. Like here's a, you know, like, like here's a program that, you know, that does some good, et cetera, that doesn't involve any policing, but like the idea that there's a sort of, uh, you know, global uh, replacement uh, that they, you know, like, like I, I often, I often get this uncomfortable sense, you know, reading these people that they, um, that they're really, you know, there really aren't good, so you know, good, like fully fleshed out answers to those questions. And oftentimes when pressed on them, right, people will say things like, well, uh, you know, we can't do it overnight or something like that, which one, I, I think if, if you can't do it overnight, I, I you know, I sort of think you you're getting a muddle. I heard can't abolish it overnight. I sort of think, well, if so, uh, you know, if what you really mean is try to gradually phase it out over time and you're not even totally sure what that would look like, but like maybe someday have as a very long-term horizon, you could have a society without a need for it. I, I think the word abolish is poorly chosen, but I also, um, I also think like in the ice case, right? The difference to my mind with ice is that no, literally I actually, I actually do want to abolish ice. You know, we could do without ice, like in the, in the short term, like we could like that, that could be a very rapid transition to ice not existing. Right. I think that you can have, um, I mean, one, it hasn't existed for, uh, for very long, but like, also, like I, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to be too lean too hard on that because uh, taken literally, that makes it sound like I think the INS was fine, which I don't, right? You know, but like, I, I think, I, you know, I actually don't think a free society needs to have a um, a policing um, branch that purely exists to round up otherwise otherwise law abiding people for for just like being in the country without permission, right? Like, I don't, I don't think that's a that's a I don't think that's a function we need to have, right? I think that they, you know, you could probably find a few legitimate functions of ICE, you know, and you can have other law enforcement agencies do those, but like ICE itself, right? The sort of core mission is a mission that I don't think would exist. And I think we could actually, uh, we could actually just, just do away with the agency without changing very much else. And, uh, and that would be okay. And in that case, I feel like there's a sort of clear enough, um, 
there's the sort of clear enough vision for what abolishing it would mean. And there's a, uh, and, and there's a sort of clear, you know, and there's this like very clear moral case. Uh, and it's, I, I think it's even easy to, to understand that, right? Like, and, and which is not to say that it's necessarily popular or you don't necessarily have an uphill battle, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of willing to, I'm kind of willing to wage that uphill battle. Right? Whereas in the, in the case of abolishing the police, I think that, I think most, you know, I mean, there are polls where, like, black voters specifically are asked, like, do you think the police presence in your neighborhood is about, is too much, too little, or about right, right? And the one that's always the least popular option is uh, is too much, right? Because even though people are perfectly aware that cops can be racist and abusive and horrible in many, many ways, the idea of taking that away... God. Yeah, exactly. The idea of taking that away sounds, you know, still still sounds worse and you know and i think certainly if you took it away under present material conditions i mean that that sounds really bad i mean that sounds like um you know that sounds uncomfortably like you know a sort of libertarian dystopia where there's like uh you know private security for people who can afford it and and nothing you know for everybody else all right so it keeps going uh i think there's like another you know 20 minutes or something after that we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to play the whole the whole thing obviously today people can check out the column episode we'll put a link uh to that in the uh the description for for here but i think that gives you you know a nice uh you know sample of of the debate and i will say that um whereas i do think other ben was being uncharitable to anna i think um you know that's really my only criticism other than that i think he's uh you know, I, I think it was a good, you know, I think it was a good discussion. I don't think he, I don't think he sloganeered. I don't think he sort of retreated into, you know, the kind of uh, like self-righteous platitudes, you know, that people, people sometimes do when they're, they're talking about this stuff. I think he was very like, you know, very um, earnest and transparent about where he's coming from. And, you know, it was, it was good. I mean, that's, this is, this is what, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I already said the vibe thing earlier, so this isn't more hippish than that. But they, uh, you know, but like, you know, I think of all the intra-left discussions about this stuff were like that. That would be, you know, better. Yeah. Well, kind of what I was going to say earlier um, to contrast it, right, with how this discussion kind of played out on Twitter. Uh, I, I didn't see what Ben, uh, the other Ben, tweeted, but um, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting his last name. But I shared it Spielberg. with you, Ben. No, 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 sorry, Adam, uh, the Adam. Oh, uh, Adam uh, Johnson? Yeah, I think so. Uh, just, the you know, at a, certain, uh, yeah, at a certain point we had, um, you know, Adam saying that uh, Anna um, and the Young Turks are basically at, like, Fox and Friends level sloganeering, and then Anna, you know, was kind of in her own right saying, like, oh, so you don't care about crime victims? So I feel like, you know, it just reminded me that... Uh, Twitter arguments tend to devolve into that place where you're basically doing these like ad hominem attacks and like it's near conspiratorial, I think to say. I don't know. Every, oh, the, yeah. <laughs> every time so every time I bid, uh, you know, there's like some massive pile on on uh, you know, on, on Twitter that I'm on the wrong end of. I'm I'm always like really reasonable. You know, I I never uh, you know, like uh, I never get defensive or say anything I shouldn't, you know. Or at least I can't yeah. think of any instances of that. I, I I actually can't, but um, yeah. But, well, that's um, that's nice of you to say, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I think we, I think we all do, right? You know, that's yeah. So. It's uh, it, it's it's a very emotionally charged platform, but I think for someone who, I mean, I would just 
count myself as someone who's still trying to make up their mind about some of this stuff. So I think uh, yeah. I was, it's, you know, good to listen to uh, well-meaning people actually kind of hash it out as opposed to just accuse each other of, you know, either being like uh, fascist propagandist or saying like, oh, well, you don't care about victims. Because I think for the most part, I assume most people are, you know, feel bad for people who, uh, whose family members are murdered. And I think, yeah. you know, most, if you spent like the majority, you know, 99 to 100% of your career pushing for left-wing policies, uh, you're probably not a Fox News propagandist unless uh, your name is Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, and, and and I think her record is not 99% pushing for leftist uh, ideals, but you know, no, you have to, no. you, you, certainly you know, not, she's, they're certainly not a recent record. Yeah, some people, you know, actually do drift rightward and I think that's legitimate. But when you disagree with someone on one point and then you start saying, oh, they're just, uh, you know, whatever, uh, Tucker well, Carlson level. So anyway, I I I, I, do I, think I would it's, specifically it's a, it's a say on that, right? I mean, I um, again, I'm I'm not going to lean too hard into into criticizing any individual's uh, you know Twitter behavior, uh, but uh, but I think um, you know, but I think that abstracting from what Adam might have said or any other person might have said, right? I mean, I think that there is a um, there's certainly like a kind of accusation that was in the mix that I find particularly ridiculous here that it's like, well, you, uh, uh, you know, you must just have some ulterior motive, right. You know, for, for, for saying this, right. Which is like, you know, I, a lot of people on the left, you know, like this is their like one move for processing serious disagreement with people that they normally agree with, right. Is to say, Oh, you must be a grifter, right. Who's paying you, you know, to, to say these things, right. Now, maybe there was some uh, foundation that gave a grant to Jacobin once. And if I trace it back five steps, I can see, you know, I can see who's paying you, you know, to, uh, to disagree with me. It's like, no, sometimes people just, I mean, you know, again, uh, sometimes people just disagree, right. Like that's uh, that, that happens. And in this case, particularly, I actually think that like raising some of these concerns about crime, like this is not, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, if I were to take up grifting and I, uh, I wanted to, um, I was thinking about the old, uh, there was an episode of, uh, of community where there was a, uh, there, where they, they taught a class at the community college called, uh, that was actually called introduction to grifting. But, uh, you know, if I were to take up grifting, right, I was just going to like pretend to believe things to appeal to an audience. And the audience that we're trying to appeal to was the like super progressive TYT audience, I don't think this is how I do it, right? I think that uh, I think that might not even be, you know, counterproductive if that was the goal. So, anyway, um, I do want to switch. I do want to switch gears, um, and um, yeah, I do want to switch gears and uh, and talk. You know, we you know we talked about Ben Spielberg, so you know, there's a there's a Another very similar person, uh, also named Ben, uh, also with a Jewish last name, um, also a carbon-based life form. Uh, so basically, pretty much identical to uh, to Ben Spielberg, right? Yeah. All Ben Stiller, right? <laughs> yeah, I am, of course, talking about Ben Stiller. <laughs> That's uh, no uh, Ben Shapiro uh, has uh, has some has some thoughts. Um, in, uh, and this is this is the last thing I want to cover before we uh, we bring on uh, William Paris from uh, from what's left of philosophy. Uh, ben Shapiro posted this video 
about a, I think it was like a little over a week ago. Um, but you know, it's, it's certainly, um, certainly not much longer that, uh, that, uh, is called, as you can see there, Marxism can't work in America. So it, uh, it caught my eye. I wanted to, uh, to see what he had to say. Uh, and, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's just let a little bit of a roll. See, see how he starts it out. Really funny to imagine this being Ben Stiller. Marxism can't work in America. <laughs> he just becomes like a right-wing demagogue. All right, let's check it out. When you have high levels of societal income mobility, when you can be born in America and you can become very, very wealthy, when you can be a middle-class person and you can get rich, very difficult to make the case that the system is stacked against you. So the left had to come up with another way to ram their cultural Marxism through. And what they came up with was race. Because while the United States historically has not had massive class distinctions that are hard and fast, it has had race distinctions that were hard and fast for the vast majority of America's lifetime, right? Until the 1960s. So from 1776 to the 1960s, you had hard and fast racial distinctions in law in many parts of the country. And that was a serious problem. So what the Marxists did is they glommed onto this and they said, okay, let's pause that. What we need to do is make Americans understand. Okay, so I just want to say so far, the narrative of, uh, of socialist history and American history that uh, that that uh, other Ben has uh, has given us here goes like this: America has always had uh, has never had hard and fast uh, class distinctions, and so Marxists had a problem. Right? How do they how do they pitch Marxism in America? And um, and the, what they came up with one golden brainstorming session was race. Uh, that uh, instead of uh, instead of class, uh, they were uh, they were going to uh, to talk about race. We we have those discussions all the time, you know, in private. We're like, uh, how are we going to sell this this shit? You know, because uh, America is so equal. There's so little inequality. Uh, sorry, yeah, we, we have the uh, the race channel on our Slack. <laughs> um, that that we're always that we're always you know. We had, how to... we had Marxism on a whiteboard and we crossed it out and wrote cultural Marxism instead because <laughs> we realized it, it wasn't working. But sorry, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is like, okay, I mean, first, um, I maybe unkindly say in the Jacobin article I wrote about this, I'd really like to imagine Ben Shapiro being transported, you know, from... Um, going to a time machine, going back a hundred years from, you know, 2022 to say 1922 when the uh, uh, coal wars were going on in West Virginia and like, just, just like putting him in the middle of that and having him explain to some coal miners who are like dodging bullets from Pinkerton's that um, there was no inequality that like affected white people in America. Uh, that the, the only, the only sort of troubling inequality, you know, was, uh, was racial. So that's one thing. Second thing, and we haven't even got into his like most interesting claim here. But second thing, um, I don't know, Matt. I mean, I'm I'm thinking as a uh, as like you know, if you think about America before the civil rights movement really got going, right? Like 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 uh, you know, 1930s, 40s America. Part of what Ben is saying is true, right? It is true. Uh, whether or not you explain it as a uh, as a result of uh, coming up with race, because uh, uh, kids on class, right? That it is true that like 
groups like the Socialist Party and the Communist Party were among the very few predominantly white organizations that actually did prioritize the struggle for racial equality in America at that time, right? That's absolutely true, right? You know, look at people, you know, the, uh, um, you know, I mean, you look at the the history of, of like, you know, communist organizing, of, you know, sharecroppers, you, uh, you look at... Um, you know, some of, you know, some of what, you know, A. Philip Randolph was doing, all that stuff, right? That's actually true. But I don't think that's because that was the only thing that people were interested in, right? I, I don't, I don't actually think that, um, I don't actually think that like getting people to talk about, to like focus on racism was the easy part in America in like the 1930s. Yeah. yeah I mean, that, I, that... I, I, sorry, go ahead, Jake. No, I was I was say who who goes ahead. No, I was yeah. I think if slavery was in practice right now, we'd probably spend a lot of time talking about it, you know, and not in like a race reductionist way. Just that there's like some, you know, it's it's, it's just something horrible that that's going on. That if you are want to fight for justice, that's something that you know these type of people were going to fight for. Um, I don't think he was thinking that deeply about Marxist history, though. Ben, that you're that's like almost too charitable. Yeah, fair. I just don't think he thinks that deeply. But um, yeah, and then the one thing we didn't, we kind of didn't touch on is he's conflating social mobility, which is also low in America, with with class. That if you're able to change classes, and that means there's no class system, right? But that has barely anything to do with Marxism, right? Uh, that's that like. Yeah, I can't even begin to. Uh, I mean, obviously, Marx knows knew that there was not like a caste system of different classes or like feudal lords and aristocrats, and like that's the whole point of why any of this even makes any sense, right? Like, obviously, that's not the case of what we had in America. But even by those metrics, we actually have like lower than average. Uh, like, you could statistically look up like someone who's born in poverty in America versus like another. Um, economically wealthy nation, what are their chances of getting out of that poverty, right? And it's actually lower uh, than, you know, most other countries with a similar economic profile, right? So No, I mean, yeah. I, so in the Jacobin article, I linked to, uh, to some uh, empirical information about this. Uh, the United States is actually pretty low in, uh, in, in upward mobility among uh, advanced, uh, you know, Western nations. Uh, in fact, uh, interestingly enough, some of the nations that are highest in upward mobility are like Denmark and Norway. Um, so, you know, make of that what you will. Um, um, the Marxists you know, there are, are very upset because they can't bring <laughs> Marxism there, so they have to do race. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, they're like, and it's, it's much harder to, to you know, to to uh, to trick people into the cultural Marxism using race in Norway. So, yeah, <laughs> so it's the hegemony. How did he say that word? Hegemony of the uh, of the people there. Oh, homogeneity. Yes, homogeneity. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, exactly. So, I mean, again, you think about America in the decades. You know, I mean, like the civil rights movement. Uh, in the sort of um, the form that was ultimately successful, like really gets going in like the fifties, right? You know, you think about America in the thirties and forties when, you know, you really do find like, you know, it's an exaggeration, but it's not as much of an exaggeration as you might think to say that it's like only socialists and other radicals who are like talking about that. Right. Um, 
that like okay but this is not because like this is what they settled on right to you know to get people to uh to you know like it's like oh this is our sneaky way of like getting marxism into the water supply you know that like we're gonna we're gonna talk about race uh in fact i'm pretty sure just talking about class was the easy part in the in in like america in the 30s and 40s i mean this is an era when um you know, like I was just talking to Sean Richmond, also on the college show uh, yesterday, actually, about um, the um, the Communist Party's uh, trade union sort of front organization, the Trade Union Unity League, which led like a quarter of a million workers out on strike. Uh, this is before the CIO started. Uh, this is uh, this is an era where. Um, even the Socialist Workers Party, right, which is like a small Trotskyist party, led like successful general strikes in Minneapolis, you know, it's a mid-sized American city. Uh, I, I think there was actually a pretty big audience for uh, for class-based appeals at the uh, at the time, right? I, I don't I don't think that you just oh you, you know you're gonna have to talk about race because nobody wants to hear about economics in America during the Great Depression, right? Um, so. So that's one thing, but I think that the main thing, which is going to come out even more strongly in what we're about to watch, is is what Jake just said, right? That, like, the core premise of all this, like, even if America really did have Norway levels of uh, upward mobility, which, by the way, I think, um, you know, I think there are actually some predictable reasons why some of those social democratic uh, policies would lead to, uh, to greater levels of upward mobility that the... Uh, you know, paying for people's college and, you know, all that stuff. Right. But, um, but like, even if the United States did have Norway levels of economic, of upward mobility, even if for the sake of argument, the United States had had Norway level, Norway in the 21st century levels of upward mobility all the way back to 1776, like Ben said earlier, which is, you know, very not right. Like let's, let's just, let's just put it that way. Right. Um, but even if it had, it would all be completely irrelevant, right? Because the social, you know, the socialist objection to the level of economic inequality that's produced by capitalism has absolutely nothing to do with upward mobility. That's that's a that's a an unrelated question. So I do want to get into that, but let's uh, let's watch a little bit more of the video. That the systems are racist, and you need to tear down the systems so you can have essentially racial mobility. That is the only way to do this. So that was the argument that was made by critical race theory. So critical race theory arrives in the 1960s. Stokely Carmichael, who is then the head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, he makes the argument in, on the heels of the Civil Rights Act of 1965, right? The first real movement in America to undercut this argument because the, the, the argument is now, okay, we're going to get rid of those race distinctions in federal law. So we've reached the end of the road, right? I mean, we, we've now gotten rid of any excuse you have for some sort of revolution based on class. Stokely Carmichael says, no, 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 that's not good enough. The systems are already stacked based on class. It's not that the systems are fair, but they were excluding people. And so if you include the people in the systems, now things are good. The entire system is racist and bad. Okay. And we can tell because there's inequality in outcome. So any system that has an. Okay. That's probably enough of that. Um, <laughs> so... Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. Um... <laughs> I mean, racial mobility is a fun phrase, right? Because it sounds like if you work real hard, you know, maybe you can you can change your race. But um, the uh, <laughs> you know anybody who's read uh, Philip Ross' novel, The Human State, I guess that's a story about racial mobility. But um, but in any case, uh, like 
be, you know, being more charitable than that, right? That like, what I find amazing about this is that when Ben Shapiro takes the like three and a half things he's heard about history and then like sticks it together with his like a priori speculation about what people must've been thinking, he assumes so deeply that the only thing that anybody could object to about inequality is the lack of upward mobility that like that's his imagination is so severely limited that he thinks that like even Marxists, if they, if they're like objecting to economic inequality, it must be because they don't think there's enough upward mobility, right? Like that, that's the, that is the only possible source of any complaint that like anybody could have about this. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, in his worldview, uh, 1965 Civil Rights Act, that should put uh, worrying about uh, racism to bed. And uh, the fact that there's any sort of uh, upward mobility at all in America, which is I don't know what society he's he's comparing it to, where he was kind of saying, like, in those societies, you could do the class thing because um, I don't know if he's thinking of like Russian uh, yeah, right. uh, feudalism or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's this like, you know, ingrained uh, belief like we've talked about on the show um, in the meritocracy. Right. Um, and we've also talked about how socialists want to go beyond meritocracy, like like what Kyle uh, Kaczynski was. Uh, I think I'm saying his name wrong, but Kalinsky. Uh, like Kalinsky. Sorry. Yeah. He was talking yeah. about um, he was kind of defending more of a mer- meritocratic vision. Right. When he was talking with Jordan Peterson. Um, and that's maybe a, a social democratic point of view. But I think most socialists uh, would say that, like, you know, even if you are you know, much better at, uh, or, you know, much faster at uh, putting together widgets in the factory, that that's not necessarily the measure by which uh, we should decide, like, who gets to eat and and, and who doesn't. So uh, it is uh, just such a, he, he's just so impressive at efficiently packing so many bad ideas into such a short period of time that we only had to show, like, two minutes and we had plenty to talk about. So I do want to give him credit for that. I do have to say, by the way, I I. I th- I mean, there was another one in 1965. I think Shapiro means 64, but yeah, that's a, that's yes. super duper petty. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, you're told you're, I mean, yes, everything you just said. Yes, absolutely. Right. I, I think that, um, you know, but like it is again, the thing that I find the most revealing is that, you know, Shapiro assumes that everybody even the most radical people, right? The, the, the Marxists, the, you know, whatever, Stokely Carmichael, who he thinks invented critical race theory, uh, the, uh, what, you know, all these people, right. That they, that he thinks that like the only goal that any of them could have is like remove fetters to the best and brightest from each group rising to the top of the class structure, right. That they, uh, that like, or at least rise into an appropriately high, level the class structure and that's kind of amazing right like just to the the sort of level of capitalist realism involved there is just off the charts you know that like um you know i mean i would like to think that like reactionary demagogues in previous generations um for whom the 
you know, communist threat or whatever was a little bit more immediate, were at least a little bit more aware of, uh, of what communists thought, because it just, it just seems like, no, that has nothing to do with it, right? I mean, yeah, liberals, sure. Right. You know, that's, that's, that's like, there's a lot of liberalism that really is about like, let's have like a pure meritocracy. Right. But like the whole, you know, the thing about meritocracy is that it's structurally impossible that everybody is going to meritocratically advance at the same time. Right. I mean, like that there, there are, um, you know, not every cheerleader can be on top of the pyramid. Right. You know, it's so um, it, it just seems like if you are uh doesn't seem like it is like, right? Like if you redefine justice to just mean unhindered meritocracy, that like you're just in um, justice has absolutely nothing to do with the needs of the majority of the population, right? That's a, uh, because, that you know, the purest meritocracy ever wouldn't help most people. Um, and it's, it's uh, and again, like the, the objection that, you know, I mean, you know, Shapiro is framing it in terms of Marxism, but I mean, like, you know, I mean, it's it's a on a sort of much more rudimentary level, just like any sort of like anti-capitalist critique is going to make to the level of inequality that's produced by capitalism, right? I mean, you could have, uh, you know, could have a little bit of inequality, you know, as a treat, but uh, the, uh, you know, the level of inequality that's produced by capitalism uh, is one nobody should be subjected to to the conditions the people on the, on the bottom end of that right and um, you know everybody deserves better than that and two that you know socialists have always understood that that level of of like inequality in the distribution of resources comes downstream of a really profound inequality in the distribution of power and and that's the and that's the real objection right I mean this this is the stuff. Um, you know, we didn't really have time to talk, and we're not going to have time, I think, to talk about the Salman Rushdie piece uh, that uh, that ended Jacobin. But I mean, this is the this is the thing that I really emphasized in there about like the sort of connection between thinking about free speech and thinking about socialist politics. That uh, you know, the sort of core of it, right, is that you know, CLR James line about you know how every cook can govern, right? You know, that if you the sort of core of socialist politics is thinking that like. It's not just that there are, you know, a few people who are capable of self-government and they can decide, like, what everybody else is, what's what's safe enough to expose everybody else to, right? That you think everybody's capable of self-government, right? You know, being exposed to every perspective and making up their own mind, and all of uh, all of that stuff. And you know, and again, it's just, um, you know, it's fine to disagree with that, but like, you know, I I just. It just seems to me that, like, this is the kind of thing you say, right? Like, oh, these Marxists must think that there's not enough upward mobility. Otherwise, I can't figure out what they're saying. If, like, you've you've lived your life in such a way as to, um, you know, very carefully insulate yourself from ever having to talk to one. It's it's like that meme I saw this weekend, which... Uh... Uh, you know, said, you know, um, how am I supposed to laugh at this? You know, this is a right winger speaking. How am I supposed to laugh at this? There's no racist jokes in here. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, uh, I mean, whatever, like, um, I guess the only time that I can think of in years that, uh, that Shapiro has, uh, exposed himself to someone well outside of his ideological bubble was 
go back to earlier the conversation, Anna Kasparian last uh, fall, I believe. Um, that sounds right. And um, you know, I guess uh, I guess I guess it took more than that hour. It's going to take more than that hour conversation to get him to internalize any of it. So, um, you know, I, I I would I would urge him to uh to to take a refresher course and uh and and uh and talk to some other leftists uh but if not it's gonna be funny and we're gonna get uh continual material for the show so i guess i'm a little conflicted about it like i i, I sort of want to keep preserve him the purity of what he's doing right now but <laughs> uh, meanwhile um for some meaty discussion of utopianism uh let us uh let's bring on uh william paris from uh, what's left of philosophy. How you doing, William? Hi, I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So uh, I've been uh, I've been curious to uh, to chat with you about this stuff for uh, for a while. Uh, this is this isn't just completism that you're the only person from your podcast who hasn't been out here. <laughs> no, I understand. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, no, I, I am very curious about this. So like. You know, one thing that, like, one of the articles that you sent me to to look at to to kind of prepare for this discussion, um, you know, you say is that in sort of like ordinary, like mainstream political discourse, like to call something utopian is like you know, is like one of, is like a really stark way of dismissing it, right? And it's like, oh, that's that's just that's just utopian. Uh, but of course, also in in our tradition, right? You know, the, the word utopian, you know, has some uh, has some negative connotations too, right? That they Absolutely. that um, there's this whole tradition of Marxist criticism of, of utopianism. So, so you want to maybe kind of start us off with like what you mean by it and why you see some value there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think the best way to understand how I think of utopianism is to uh, kind of look at it as I'm trying to go back to you know what were some of the original uses of utopia when it emerged in political traditions? And so one of the things I sent you is me talking about Thomas More. I think, you know, a lot of people have the idea that what Thomas More meant by utopia was simply this place of impossibility. It's a type of quietism. You know, it's nice for intellectual or, um, you know, imaginative reflection, but it's a way of avoiding politics. And so in the, the left tradition, that's normally what the critique of utopianism is. It's moralism. It thinks that you can simply just exit social contradictions and create, you know, castles in air and has no science behind it. But, you know, what you find in Thomas More that I think is, you know, really interesting, whatever the substance of his own politics, but, you know, there's evidence that aspects of his politics are more more radical in his own moment is that it's a it's a tool for social critique and so you know if you look at the the book utopia what he's doing is only the second book the second half of the text is about the supposedly perfect society and even then he doesn't even think uh, you know the author doesn't even describe the perfect society but the first book which i think is really interesting is you know it's really this dialogue of you know, of um, an adventurer who saw the supposedly perfect society and him trying to decide what is my role in political society now, and you can see that what's going on in the book is Thomas More is finding his own way of saying he's critiquing the enclosures that were happening in England in the I believe the 14th century. He's making this you know um, claim pretty much that you know if you cut people off from the means of subsistence. Why should you expect them not to steal? Why should you expect them to hold on to some sort of moral purity? And mm -hmm. so what Utopia actually does is to say that 
you know, the status quo often says, oh, that's utopian, that's impossible, that's fanciful. But it's an attempt to reveal that what we think of as the normal course of things and yet are constantly mystified by the systematic repetitions of things like you know, crime or violence or poverty actually is a way of saying that what you take to be a realistic, that is the most utopian you know, uh, thing around. That you think that you can you know, kind of you know, um, oppress people, that you can you know, cut them off from any means of you know, um, self-determination mm. and think that they'll still remain moral angels, that will still remain a perfect society. It allows you a vantage point from which to grasp how your society, what your society takes as normal, what it takes as unchangeable, and the reasons it gives itself to that, and to challenge those reasons and say that those reasons aren't fundamental, these things are not unchangeable, and you know that we need to have a sense that things could be otherwise. And so my notion of utopia is not about constructing a perfect society in my head, it is about how do we denaturalize certain assumptions that we take for granted in political discourse and show that are taken on their own terms, are rather internally contradictory and thus should be challenged on that basis rather than simply assuming their terms of the the argument and trying to make it work yeah it's really interesting that your your point of reference here is uh is thomas moore who um you know i think uh like the you know i don't know like i think about thomas moore i think about like wolf hall and uh, and that the sort of uh, sort of depiction of him as, as as this like kind of terrifying Catholic arch reactionary. Uh, that 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 is a side to uh, how he's described, and it's it's also partially why people who are more conservative, mm. you know, it's not just Thomas More. Obviously, people who are uh, contemporary conservatives worry about utopianism mostly because they're drawing on. 20th century experiences with communism mm. and utopianism and Marxism communism are collapsed into one. And so utopianism for I think a lot of more conservative people, it's like this fervor of you know simply remaking social life according to your own whims. Um, but you know, yeah, you're you're right. You know, Thomas More is a complex figure. Um and it's a it's unclear how much you know uh, uh, of those you know scary and awful things are true. Sure, um, I I I said there's still you know sort of you know disputes about that, but I I take it that it's still important philosophically because you know I I think it's important to understand why this concept of utopia has all of these affective resonances around it, and I think for a lot of people it. it speaks of a type of surety that has no place in politics and is not available to democratic contestation, that it is, sim is simply hostile to difference. Um, I think that has to be incorrect reading of you know, major strands of the utopian tradition, but you know, we, we can talk more about that. Yeah, no, that's good. So, cause I think this gets down to, I mean, you sort of mentioned it earlier, right? But I mean, it's worth taking a minute on the uh, the sort of traditional Marxist critique of at least one thing that was called utopianism, you know, which which is about sort of creating a perfect society in, in your head, and mm -hmm. um, and there are I, I take it right at least a couple of reasons to to sort of object to that, right? So if if what like the utopian socialist is traditionally conceived as like thought to be doing is they're sort of 
I don't know. They've got some principles about justice, maybe, and they're sort of they've they've des- they've they've designed a society that would be in perfect accord with that that uh, those principles, and then they're just like going to sort of work backwards from that, right? You know, you should like, what's the difference between what what we've got and that? Well, anything that's not that, right? You know, must be must be objectionable. Why don't we have that? You know, the and and uh, there are you know, a lot of reasons somebody might object to that, but I think the two that have been like sort of historically important for Marxists are one, um, you know, something, you know, like, I don't know, I guess historical materialism, you know, that they, the mm-hmm. idea that, um, that like what possibilities are present um, at any given time sort of flows from, you know, material conditions at that time, you know, that they, that, um, and then, um and you know you you can't just like extrapolate it a priori, right? It's it's you know sort of things become possible at different points in history, mm-hmm. and then the second I think you already kind of mentioned, which is the sort of idea that this um, that there's something sort of almost anti democratic about uh, about the idea of of like just sort of starting with with um, with this idea of a perfect society, right? That like mm-hmm. uh, that you know that if uh, you know that like if I uh, I mean I actually you know. Like if people are, you know, I, I was when I'm making this point, right? I was even though I even though I actually live in Georgia, right? I was changing to Brooklyn because it's just funnier somehow. But they have mm-hmm. a, uh, you know, like if you think like people like sitting at a coffee shop in Brooklyn and you know in, in 2022, right, are going to like come up with exactly what like the socialist future is going to be like, and you're mm-hmm. just sort of expecting everybody to to just do that, right? Agree you know? and go along, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Then uh, they think, well, hold on, right? I mean, isn't uh, there's this whole strand of of uh, Marx's thought that probably informs Marx's own reluctance to do what he called writing recipes for the cookshops of the future that certainly reflected stuff like what Rosa Luxemburg wrote about the Russian Revolution that you say, well, no, you're going to run into all these unpredictable problems and then you're going to need the sort of these sort of mass democratic energies of the masses to sort of like engage in this process of deliberation to like figure out what the best solutions are to this problem. So it, it's just not, um, it's just not possible, right? Yeah. In to, to, uh, to sort of, formulate you know exactly exactly what the future should look like uh yeah. a priori and I, and I take it that like you're sympathetic to those sorts of concerns about at least that sort of version of utopianism yes uh, yeah absolutely and i you know all i want to you know, i i don't want to deny that of course you know utopians and those who are part of the utopian tradition mm-hmm. have done that have had that idea but i also tend to be suspicious and i guess this is my my mm-hmm. spicier take i think how large a part of that is of the utopian tradition has been a bit overblown by mid-20th century political um, experiences, um, especially specific um, philosophers who, you know, I'm not saying how I feel about them one way or another. I always get in trouble, like, you know, Arendt is is a big one in the human condition. You know, she ta- um, describes utopia as, you know, uh, you know, kind of a desire to escape the um, the messy plurality of humanity. Um, oh. And she even... Though, though you know, I, also, I also don't know how much advice I'm going to take about uh, not being utopian uh, from, uh, from somebody who thought that... Uh, uh, legally prohibiting private sector uh, discrimination was a bridge too far. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So <laughs> I'm obviously with you there, like you. Know, but you, know, you have you, know, Hannah Rent. You have you know, people like Karl Popper, and the big one who probably has a lot to say about how we got to the place that we are is you know, someone like F. A. Hayek, and you know his notion of of you know, um, utopianism is a way of um, 
destroying the spontaneity of market orders. It's a dream of centralism. Mm. It's an impossible dream. But if it's not impossible, it's absolutely destructive. Sometimes there's this tension of if it's impossible, then why do you need to worry about it? And you know, if it's you know absolutely destructive, then you know it seems like so it's something that should you know is possible and should be taken seriously. It's possible. It's just undesirable. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes it goes back and forth. So I don't deny that there have been utopians who have said that. But, you know, what I find interesting is in the, you know, I have two things to say about this. In the practice of utopian tradition, when it comes to democratic contestation, it's often a way of reopening the case of contestation in, in social life. It is, you know, it is a manner of saying, we think that this is the only way we could live our lives. Why is that the case? And you know, and you know, and some one of my other philosophers I like to draw upon, someone like Ernst Bloch, you know, his argument for utopianism is, you know, it's often thought that utopianism, you know, whenever people describe this, this is why I sometimes find very strange. I get it. I'm you know, I, I say should I get it? It's as if utopians are simply these ide um these ideologues, my ideologues mean people who work with ideas. These individuals who are just in their armchairs scribbling papers, but utopianism speaks to nobody else on the planet. You know, there's this idea that you know the working class and real human beings they have no truck for. But someone like Ernst Bloch, he's saying, well, no, utopianism permeates our life in every sigh for a better world, in every hunger that we have, in this every sense that we have something is missing from our social life. He thinks that's evidence that actually utopia, you know, is rather constitutive of what it means to be a grounded human social being. But, you know, if you deny that and make utopia simply this thing that elitist intellectuals do, then you also have a way of simply just, you know, either bracketing out or explaining very real um, struggles, very real gaps, very real, you know, contradictions in, in ordinary people's lives. And so if that is the case, then it seems to me something like this. A utopia isn't about coming up with perfect plans. It is actually the expression of, of you know, democratic desire for a different world in which our needs are met. And the terms of how we meet those needs, you know, that will always be contestable. And I don't think any one person can say we'll all agree on it. But at least utopia can bring into relief certain social needs that we have that have not been made explicable yet. Have simply been assumed that's just the way things are, or these people don't matter, or they're not the the right citizens we should be concerned about. And so for me, I, I always wonder. I think about it this way: you know, we might never have utopia, but I actually think we'll miss it when it's gone. You know, I, I'm trying to imagine a world in which we have no sense that there is something, you know, um, that there is a different manner in which we can arrange our lives. That you know, this is all there is, and that all that all that we have left is management. Simply managing contradictions, simply managing the status quo, because that's what it means to be a grown-up. And now that we set aside our, our our dreams, but if you look at the social movements that have really altered the political landscape, if you want to talk about the American Civil Rights Movement, if you want to talk about anti-colonial efforts, if you even want to talk about, as you know, obviously as you know, misbegotten as, as some of it became, you know, the 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 Soviet experiment. Or if you want to talk about, you know, suffragists, all of that before it accomplished what it did was utopian. I do tell me someone who in 1943, if you told them, by the way, there's going to be landmark legislation that is going to effectively outlaw segregation. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, no, that's obviously going to happen. That, you know, most people wouldn't. That, that would seem like 
really incredible and try to tell them something like, you know, and black people, some black people will be upwardly mobile and CEOs of companies, you know, and all of this, that would have been ridiculous. And yet that political effort did happen. And so that tells me it wasn't waiting for someone to say, here's what the perfect world looks like. It says that, you know, human beings are creative creatures operating under, you know, burdened contradictions, but that still means that this is an essential part of their political agency. And we should have some humility, you know, when we simply think that we know what's impossible, when so much of our world would have seemed impossible if you just go back a couple generations. Right. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I do also wonder, you know, so like, seems like a lot of what you're talking about, about utopianism is like, um, a sense that the world could be dramatically different and, you know, in, in, in ways that are, are hard to imagine right now. Right. And, um, and, and certainly any kind of radicalism is going to need to be utopian in, in that sense. Right. I mean, that, that you're, you know, I mean, I'm, I mean, you know, with, without that, I mean, you're, you're just like doing liberal reformism, right? That's, uh, yeah. the world is fa a fallen place and yet we're fallen creatures. And so, what else is there to do except, you know, try to guard your own soul? Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, so, right, for sure, right? So so that makes sense. Uh, I, I, am, I am curious, you know, like to go back to Thomas More, right? He said, okay, so in the, the first half of the book, he's, uh, you know, he's sort of talking about the, the, the ridiculous things about the status quo, about the, the idea that it's there's something um, – that's actually unrealistic in the sense of, you know, like utopian in the bad sense of about thinking that, you know, peasants driven off the land by enclosure aren't going to steal and things like that. Right. You know, but then the second half of the book is where he's getting into, um, uh, you know, it's a little ambiguous, uh, but you know, a, 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 a vision of something that in many ways would be better. Right. Yeah. Uh, so. so and, and it's that second part, right, that I think some of these uh, these left critiques of of utopianism are are objecting to. And I'm curious about like the extent to which you think there's a case for that, or like whether you think there's a case for like mm. um, for you know for for doing the um, you know drawing up the occasional blueprint, not because you think. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like, like, okay, this is something uh, you guys did a, an episode recently about a uh, book by Carl Kautsky. Uh, and um, I listened to that and, uh, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I like the episode. I like Kautsky. I like what he's praised, you know, but they have a, but, uh, but one of the, the sort of Kautsky points that came up in there, right, was, was his sort of very traditional Marxist, like anti-blueprint, you know, kinds of, uh, yeah. you know, kinds of views. And, um, and I wonder if, uh, I wonder if there might be something to be said for, um, you know, for, uh, you know, writing some recipes for the cookshops of the future, um, in a way that sort of give, you know, I mean, as a way of keeping alive utopianism in your primary sense and as a, you know, that there's a, there might be just a sense that like, okay, you can take and you can take on board all of those, those right to to the sort of mm -hmm. strong form of of utopianism right you know you can take on board the idea that um it's uh that it's it's bad to uh to be 
not be alive to the ways in which you know in which historical contingency and what's materially possible at any given time or whatever you know constrain mm-hmm. you know what what you could do um you know there's there's no point uh there's no point you know like coming up with you know with like saying oh i object to this society because it's not this thing that would be impossible anyway or like that's not this thing that like we don't know how to do it in a way that would be desirable anyway mm-hmm. Uh, and there's certainly something to the sort of logistical and democratic complaints that like, it would be absolutely ridiculous to think like, okay, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we, you know, like we huddle for a while and like come up with like, okay, here's exactly how we think that a future society should work. And then expect that like everybody for the next 50 years is just going to like, you know, cool. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if y'all said it though. Sometimes it feels like in American society, the founding fathers are treated that way. Oh, that's true. But, you know, <laughs> no. but like, you know, but those are the non-utopians, though, right? <laughs> yeah, no, very much so. And uh, and yeah, we 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 end up having these bizarre arguments about like you know what exactly they were thinking with like you know individual sentences. That's like I, I don't you know. <laughs> when, when you start to think about it, it's really wild. And you know, it, it does not seem like a really functional way to run a society. And and yet the, the people who make these arguments for this society, when you try to offer, you know, even provisional plans of how things would work differently, it's immediately shut down as you know, that's ridiculous because you know that doesn't you know belong to the framing of you know the constitutionalism that at some point we all agreed to it actually feels more like a bunch of people in the past agreed to it and saddled us with it and so you know again i think it's you know important to you know glimpse those moments where what is called the very sort of pragmatic and practical way of running you know um social life or um, organizing social life is probably a better way to put it are deeply impractical and if you keep pushing deeply nonsensical and so I do understand, you know, the, the critique of blueprints for the future, if it's understood as, you know, some select number of individuals get in a room together and get their own assent, and then they just, you know, impose it upon, you know, a society that's ripe with contradictions, as ripe with disagreements, etc. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. I think we should be rather um, suspicious of the effectivity of those who want to make a case that life could be organized differently and yet refuse to say any how? details about how that would look, how it could come about, etc. I mean, it's a great way to immunize yourself to critique because you're not putting anything on the table to be contested. So I, I do wonder... You know, sometimes people take that that Marx line and like, you know, I mean, Marx, like any other thinker, is, you know, open to being like decontextualized and like things are turned into slogans. You know, I, I guess I'm on board the idea that sometimes I think this is a bit of a cliche because I do not understand if the worry is something like, you know, a, an attempt to sidestep democratic you know, mm. contestation or an attempt to no longer analyze, you know, um, actual social conditions, the relations of forces of production, et cetera, et cetera. I don't understand why we wouldn't think that when we offer these blueprints, that makes them available for critique. And through that critique, you actually gain an even deeper understanding of the social forces in your life. It just seems to me that's just you know, that's just skipping what's going on. It's assuming that anyone who comes up with any outline of you know, where um, life could go, given what is here, 
must be anti-democratic and must be authority, you know, imposed with authoritarian measures. So what's interesting with you know, the second book of Thomas More, you know, it, it is actually genuinely ambiguous whether he's saying we need to go there, but I can tell you a part of the function that it is serving is it is only utopia because it's relative to you know um, a crisis-ridden society it's attempting to critique. So one big thing that you'll notice if you read the second book of Thomas More's Utopia is they don't have money there. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Thomas More is trying to make some sort of um, social critique, and again, it's not a Marxist critique. It wouldn't make sense for it to be a Marxist critique. He was writing before Marx. But he's saying something about money corrodes you know, social mm-hmm. relationships, and he's trying to put that on the table. Now I get it, you know, some people perhaps, you know, following people like, you know, Adam Smith or something like that might say, well, that's not true. So, you know, money actually facilitates your know, social coordination, et cetera. But at least he's putting it on the table as something available for us to discuss, critique, and actually ask, so what is it that money does in the society? Mm-hmm. What is it that, you know, uh, what vision of society does money carry within it about how we will organize ourselves? And to be able to ask those questions it's not actually always easy. And so to say that you know, we don't want any sort of cookbooks for, for the future, I mean, it seems like you're evacuating you know, the critical potential to reflect on you know, the, the very you know, site in which you live. And if you can do that without some sort of step beyond the limit of your, your life, I, I, I'd like to see it, but I don't understand, you know, I don't understand how critical thought works that way. No, totally. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that there's a good, um, yeah, I mean, a couple thoughts about that. I mean, one, um, I think that one function of, uh, of thinking about how future society could work that's, uh, is precisely to, um, to pry open people's imaginations so they could, um, you know, like they they could you know think about ways to go even further you know in the same same direction, right? I mean, this is something uh, Seth Ackerman wrote a, wrote an article several years ago for Jacobin called "The Red and the Black," uh, where um, he uh, he talks about like the you know calculation debates for socialist planning and stuff like that, and he lays out a sort of um, you know a a vision of uh, like one way that like those problems could be, could be gotten around. And I don't even particularly like, you know, like, like, you know, I, I think his preferred solution isn't even necessarily the same as mine. That's not the point. Right. You know, it's that the, uh, I really like the way that he frames it at the, uh, at the beginning of the, uh, the article where he sort of says, look, I'm trying to, to come up with a, a sort of way that like keeping a lot of things constant from our society, we could, you know, we could have something different, not in order to foreclose further change, but precisely, to to sort of convince people that like fundamental change is is possible, possible. yeah, exactly mm-hmm. right. Uh, and I think that there's a and and I and I also think that there's a sense in which um, like we might have a particularly good reason to to maybe you know write a few recipes now in uh, in 2022, which is uh, that you know so many people don't really think it's possible, right? That there there are um, you know I mean even like obviously i you know the revival of some sort of socialist movement in a limited way is a tremendously positive thing but like you know there's very little actual socialism in it right i mean there's a you know like uh they you know most um you know like 
even you sort of get this spectrum that goes from you know, sort of good, honorable social democratic policies in the short term and not much after that, right, to uh, to a, a very vague kind of anti-capitalism, right? Yeah. You know, that like, you know, there, there it, isn't it's really- It's very in vogue to be anti-capitalist now, uh, which you, you can take a, as maybe a, a good sign of things sure. to come or the idea that it's become a phrase that's been almost evacuated of actual- political content and substantive practices and visions of what it would mean to be anti-capitalist. And to me, that you know, says something like, you know, um, I, I, I'll, I'll go on record and say that I think, you know, people who are still fighting utopianism, I almost want to say, you're fighting a battle that had, has already been won a long time ago. Yeah. It's unclear to me who it is that you think are these utopians that are threatening society. And honestly, you look around, most people are not utopians at this no, moment. No, not at all. And even when they make the sounds of utopianism, there isn't you know, the, the organizational capacity. And sometimes it seems like there isn't even really the belief that this is something that leads to something else. It's more of um, you know, a sort of a moral badge that one has. You know, one should uh, say that they are anti-capitalist, but what practices fall from that? Well, nothing that would generate, you know, a broad restructuring of social life. And so when I look at it like that, mm -hmm. you know, I almost want to say, is it our, the problem that we have now is that people's imaginations are flying too freely, that, you know, they, they really think that they can just remake the world with their own individual will according to blueprints they generate in their head? I, I don't think so. And, 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 you know, so you could say on the one hand that utopianism is depoliticizing, uh, disengaging. And I always say, you know, what do we have now? <laughs> and, you know, is it, you know, isn't there so much depoliticization, disengagement happening, save for what seems to be, you know, um, you know a, a, a labor movement that is you know, struggling to come back to life. But notice that when this labor is coming, struggling to come back to life, you look at people like, um, what is his name, uh, Chris Smalls, you know, mm -hmm. the Amazon warehouse. They're talking about, you know, a different form of social life that we could have. And that, again, is a spark. Uh, of, of utopianism and so you know for me i i always want to think about it this way i always think about it in two ways one mm -hmm. when people critique utopianism i look out the world and i think utopianism didn't do that to the world so you're gonna have to come up with a different explanation it isn't the utopians who you know kind of wreck social life for millions and millions of people but then on the other hand, when I'm talking to people who I'm probably you know, more sympathetic with, I, you know, I get it. Social action is complicated. I don't pretend to have sure. all the answers. But, you know, I'm offering my explanation of how it is people start engaging in the really difficult work of reconstructing their social life. And I think uh, they do it because they have a sense of possibility. You know, maybe they're wrong. Maybe history will prove them wrong. But I have a hard time explaining human action if people, you know, completely forego anything that utopianism has to say. And they are simply being, you know, this, you know, understanding themselves as these are unchangeable conditions and yet I will struggle. I don't think that that is actually explanatory for how social change happens. Um, it's a nice story because it means that social change will happen no matter what. So that's great, but I don't think that's true. Yeah, I mean, I would. I think about uh, Michael Albert has a video on YouTube somewhere where he, 
he was talking about how much he hates the phrase fighting the good fight. You know, it's like, it's like, mm-hmm. look, if, if you're just, mm-hmm. if you're just fighting to fight, I mean, man, just, just like, you know, just go to the hey. beach or something. Like why, why, you know, like, <laughs> why why? This, yeah, you know, yeah. Sometimes, you know, fighting, you know, fighting the good fight or, or, you know, um, you know, the struggle is the point. Like I, I've actually found myself to become, and I think this is because I've gotten deeper and deeper into the utopianism stuff. I don't think struggle on its own has, you know, even moral words. I don't mm-hmm. think we should, you know, romanticize struggle or terms like resistance. You know, I often find myself saying to people, I don't want to talk about resistance. I want to talk about transformation. Mm-hmm. You know, resistance, you know, kind of assumes, you know, I'm always going to be playing this negative force. You know, I'm never going to overcome it. But, you know, I, you know at least, you know, I showed up for the fight and that's the best I can say. But if you look at people who participate in these movements, they didn't think of themselves as, you know, it's just good to struggle. They thought, no, we're going for the world. We want a new world. And so, you know, sometimes I worry and I I, I, I realize how I'm sounding here. I worry about overly moralizing politics mm-hmm. and making it, you know, um, a badge of how you can become a, a good person. No, I I, 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 I think, don't get me wrong, it's great to be a good person. But, sure. you know, politics does not have some sort of uh, intrinsic value. No, absolutely. You know, uh, I, I think it's a great, to, I think it's, I, I actually I'd go even further. I'd say it's great to be a good person, but I think it's a, I think it's, uh, I think it's bad for both, poli- for both um, the kind of project of some kind of liberatory politics. And it's also bad for like, you know, people for like interpersonal relations to, 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 to conflate the two, mm. right. To, to sort of, no, no. you know, that sort of project of being a good person, and, you know, and try and change the world. In fact, like, I think, uh, I think what makes a good person a good person is often really different, right? I mean, that they have like, like, like I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't particularly admire people who make absolutely no distinction between their friends and family members and like everybody else, right? You know, whereas yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, what what type of social life, you know, it, 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 what type of vision of social life is that? And so this is another thing with utopia that it's trying to make the basic argument that your social practices and your conduct um, not only imply something about you, they imply something about the set of social relations in which those practices will be intelligible. And so it, it is actually also a way of you know, returning a sense of, of responsibility and understanding of ourselves as socially situated and determined creatures and, you know, and to ask, why is it that my conduct is this way? And those this flips the relation rather than it's like, why am I a bad person? How should I change myself? It's asking, why is it that I have this type of conduct, these types of practices that are intelligent within this form of life? Well, it turns out, you know, there are these incentive structures that are in place for these such and such reasons. But in order to see that, you need to see them as not simply natural outgrowths, but actually, you know, um, you know, outcomes of political organization, even from people who have been long dead and were still mm-hmm. saddled with what they did. And this shows you how much of our, our world is a is, is the fruit a political struggle rather than some sort of natural this is the way that things are. And so I actually kind of flip it. I think most people think utopianism is a form of moralism. And I, I don't think that that's um, usually what you, utopians are doing. What utopians are doing is they, they want to make the, the world contestable again. And mm-hmm. so it is not about you know, conserving one's soul or, or consciousness again, Great things to do within you know, certain spheres of your social life where you make distinctions between friends and family mm-hmm. and all of that. But it is actually about grasping you know, 
what are the complete sets of relations that you know, systematically lead to our experiences of need and hunger and deprivation and ask, must it be that way? Mm-hmm. Is it rational for it to be this way? That's why I don't want to romanticize struggle. And you know, I, I don't think that there will be a world in which there is no struggle whatsoever. Sure, Look, I struggle to get out of bed. I don't think any utopian society yeah, yeah. will stop me from having pain in my back. Okay, right. I get it. But I also don't think that all forms of struggle are necessary to social life as such. And no, exactly. I don't want to engage in a type of way of thinking where all struggle is necessary struggle. When the point is, you know, there are certain struggles that we do want to end. We want to end the struggle over food insecurity. I assume we'd like to end the struggle over, you know, climate sustainability, you know, and to actually say that those are things that we should want because, you know, whatever we want to decide about social life will probably be easier, you know, without, you know, struggles that inhibit us from actually engaging you know, with um, our fellows or apprehending the world clearly. Yeah, I think so. I think, and, and I think the point you made about the connection between, you know, moralism, right? You know, and I'd make a distinction between that and and just like, you know, morality, right? That they have a, that, uh, that moralism, right? The sort of intense focus on like morally judging, you know, individuals uh, and, uh, and the lack of any sort of horizon for, uh, for winning. Right, you know, that yeah. for, for, for ended struggles, I think makes a lot of sense to me. You know, the argument you know made in the past is that it's you know, if you sort of see yourself as a as a permanent opposition, right? I mean, all you think that you're all you think you're really doing is registering this kind of moral protest against the injustices around you, then mm-hmm. you know, it makes a lot of sense that you end up spending a lot of time, you know, like I think it's a very natural extension of that to like start spending a lot of time being like, okay, but that guy over there, is he really like mm-hmm. as opposed to it as I am, mm-hmm. like does he really feel in his heart the way that I do, right? Does he really uh, get it? Does he really have the vibe? What's what's funny is you know, moralism is actually actually think is profoundly anti-utopian. Mm-hmm. A lot of you know, like moralistic discourse, I think those of us, you know, on the left and obviously on the right, you know, do not like. Um, almost assume that there are these unchanging facets of society, and the best one can do is you know, register that they know that this is bad. Mm-hmm. And you know, and you know, I, I sometimes think you know something about utopia. To go all the way back, you know, to Thomas More, when you go to utopias, when you take your utopias, it isn't even these are perfect people mm-hmm. in the society. Mm-hmm. It's as if you know, again, it's it's unclear what how Thomas More feels about the whole picture that he's creating. But you know, the thing that he's saying is that you can still have imperfect people in substantially better social conditions. And so that's why I will always contest the idea that utopianism is, is expecting this sort of Promethean effort in which people are no longer people. You know, no, it understands that, you know, people can be, you know, radically different in radically different social settings, but that doesn't mean that they'll be perfect. And, you know, we don't need people to be perfect in order to have a a better world. But, you know, I think, you know, simply saying that people won't be perfect, you know, that doesn't commit you to the idea that things like, you know, racism or sexism, you know, or whichever, or, you know, whiteness and all that are simply 
unchanging, obstinate, um, trans-historical forces on society, because actually that's a way of severing them from whatever political conditions make them viable and simply make them the, the almost the, the background of nature. They're simply what you have to, you know, struggle against. You, you can't control hurricanes, you can't control earthquakes, you can't control volcanoes, you can't control lightness, and it's just a, a feature of the landscape. And I think that's profoundly disempowering and also creates, you know, really frayed social relations and things that are just inexplicable when you want to make your case to um, broader publics. Yeah, and I mean, you know, why this is a good example there because that's a... Uh... Or that's maybe like a particularly funny example, right? Because because that's something that's like historically that's like you know five to ten minutes ago, right? You know that and uh, and scholars have done really good work saying, oh wait, that's when it started cropping up as a as a salient social category amid other social forces to you know to advance some sort of claims or some sort of gains of power, and that tells you I think that's a that's important. No, and, for sure, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like like a yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, I I made this point uh, on the stream last night that like you know that's that's something that always hits me every time I um, you know I go back. My my sister lives in the UK. Every time I go visit there after I've, I haven't been there in a few years, there's always like some uh, the right wing press there is always like obsessed with like some new group of like dangerous immigrants, and it's always like I don't know like Romanians or Croatians or something, and it's like mm -hmm. it's like. That's so weird because from American perspective, those are all just white people, right? <laughs> so, you know, but it's like it's like, oh yeah, it's almost as if this is all just like hopelessly contingent and you know, whatever. But um but I do uh you know, I, I think I think maybe, you know, the the last thing I'd say, you know, and then we can wrap up is just like um you know, I think that maybe one way to sort of take some of the legitimate critiques of utopianism on board and still see some, you know, room for uh, some value in writing at least some possible recipes for the cookshops of the future. Not mind you ones that you think that anybody in the future is going to necessarily follow, right? Cause that's mm -hmm. up to them. Right. You know, but yeah, uh, you can't really control what they do. Well, yeah. You shouldn't yeah. aspire to control what they do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but like, it's just that, you know, in the 20th century, uh, in fact, part of the reason that in mainstream discourse, you know, utopianism has such a bad rap, right. You know, is, is because, you know, in the uh, in the twentieth century, there was the you know Soviet Union. There's the People's Republic of China, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you know, these societies all existed for a little while, but they have a uh, but um, you know they were beset by various you know problems and um, and lots of bad things happened, and that helps to lead you know a lot many people to think, well, okay, you know maybe. Uh, you know, what we've got now sucks, but I mean, like, if you, if you try to change it in a fundamental level, right, you know, you're just gonna maybe even make it worse, right? And, uh, mm. and if you want to, it, it makes a lot of sense to me to say that, okay, if you want to, like, address that source of imaginative resistance to the idea that we could, you know, not just be anti-capitalism, but be pro something that comes after capitalism, you know, then, mm. um, then, it makes sense to think, well, you know, you want to give people, you want to sell people on the idea that something else is actually possible. And if you can at least create a sort of um, like, you know, if you can at least sort of sketch out a plausible sounding uh, scenario mm -hmm. for what that something else might look like, right. That helps mm -hmm. make it, that helps make it not seem like either, um, 
either like it's it's this is just like uh you know it's like hurricanes or whatever they suck but yeah. like you know you can't abolish them you know they uh or uh or or that it's um you know, I guess the related thing, right? Which is that there's always this, you know, I mean, it goes back to what you're saying about Hayek, right? You know, that they, that like, well, maybe it would be possible at least temporarily to create something else, but, you know, but it would be, uh, it would be a disaster. Exactly. And who wants that? And you're better off the way you are. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. And, and so it, it, it seems to me, uh, you know, some of the really difficult work with utopianism that I, I'm trying to do is, you know, partially I want to um, to shed these what I would call ideological obfuscations that have attached to the concept as if they are intrinsic to the concept as such. And so, you know, I, I have you know, talked about utopianism elsewhere and, you know, the amount of times, you know, people have you know, yelled Stalin at me as if that must be what I am talking about, as if, like, I must be okay with, you know, something like, you know, um, starvation or something like that. And, you know, and I think you know, that's a way, again, of cutting off the conversation. And so there seems to me at least, you know, two resistances to utopia. And I, I think this goes back to my kind of, you know, semi-joke about Hayek. Um, they're impossible. And so this idea of trying to radically change society, you look at things like the Soviet experiment of People's Republic of China or, you know, other things. You can look at also minor utopias that eventually just got swallowed up and all that and say, well, you tried those things, but it turns out radically changing the world is impossible. To that, I think something that's really important about utopia is actually the world that we have um, it, with the, the way that, you know, we have a, a market that functions so centrally in our lives was not always this way. And in, mm -hmm. in fact, you know, for people who eventually were won over to this vision of the world, they were also utopians. You know, you know, Hayek would never call himself a utopian, but you know, he is describing a kind of a utopia for capital. And right. my my point there is, you know, without trying to be too polemic, well, it turns out, you know, it was possible to radically restructure the world, and we're living in that world. But it's just that it happened so long ago that it seems as if well this was just a natural outgrowth rather than a series of political decisions that with some luck happen to be successful and so i think utopia offers you know, a retrospective retrospective way of looking back at our social life and seeing oh this isn't just some natural unfolding you know these were contests that were won and lost the other issue is you know that you know okay so utopia is not uh impossible but it's obviously terrible there are two ways to think about this. One, when people talk about things like starvation and uprooting people's lives and degrading the social conditions of their existence, sometimes like, are you talking about an imaginary world? Or are you talking about the world that we live in now? Right. Because as far as I can tell, there is food insecurity. There is increasingly drying up your rivers and people having to migrate north. And so I'm unclear, you know, is it that you just want the disaster to happen on a longer scale? Is that okay? Or you could say something like, I don't see any reason why, you know, simply because some things happened in the past, that's necessarily how they would happen in the future. And if you're a good materialist, that wouldn't even make sense because the social forces are different. The, the political ideologies at play are different. This is a different constellation of social life. And so that you know, seems to me an illicit uh, induction to say, oh, when you say utopia, you mean, you know, um, failed experiments that happened, you know, 70 years ago. Again, that's not a serious conversation. 
you know, you know, that's why I think the the brief act that we should be willing to talk about blueprints because if you if you don't, if you don't have some idea, something to say about what you're thinking about life, and you can't even show that that's not a serious conversation or someone's not even engaged with what you're saying, you're just allowing them to fill in for you what they think your blueprints are. And what can you say? You, uh, you know, I guess you could just say something like, you know, the historical social process will work out the contradictions and then you'll see, which, you know, good luck. I, I, I hope there's something to that. But sure, I think, but, you know, but if, but if that's your if that's your best pitch, I don't know how many uh, how many people you're going to convince that way. Exactly. You know, it, it, it makes for, for good inside baseball. I don't think it makes for very good, you know, conversation when you're you're either in the union room or you're in some sort of social organization. Why would anyone listen to the guys like, I don't know what's all this disagreement about. Obviously, the macro social forces are going to decide. So let's just, you know, let's see where this takes us. I think you're muted. Yeah. Um... So I will uh, I will say uh, people who uh, who want to uh, hear more about what you have to say about this uh, this subjects so you have this article in uh, in Psyche uh, called uh, Utopian Thinking prompts us to get real about society's needs. Uh, where else can people check out you and your work? Yeah, um, so uh, I work at University of Toronto. You can go to my website, williammparis.com, and you'll find all of my published articles, um, uh, videos, and podcasts I have done. And you know, on, on that note, I can't uh, you know, end without saying, also, you can hear things that I have to say with my other three brilliant, brilliant co-hosts on What's Left of Philosophy. You can follow us at, at Left to Phil, uh, and you can find us at, you know, um, leftofphilosophy.com. Um, All right. Thank you so much, William. Thank you for having me. Wonderful time. <laughs> All right. I'm here to save this show. What up, y'all? <laughs> Hi, Jay Andrew. <laughs> there we go. Classic gentrance. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, so uh, you uh, gave me to, uh, to prepare for the segment tonight. Uh, a, uh, a short, uh, I do all the, well, me and Jake, we do all the work around here. Yeah, more or less. I barely know what's going on. So, uh, so, uh, gave me this, uh, short, uh, instructional philosophy video to prepare for tonight's segment. When your cable company keeps you on hold, you get angry. When you get angry, you go blow off steam. When you go blow off steam, accidents happen. When accidents happen, you get an eye patch. When you get an eye patch, people think you're tough. When people think you're tough, people want to see how tough. And when people want to see how tough, you wake up in a roadside ditch. Don't wake up in a roadside ditch. ditch. Get, Get rid, rid of, of cable, cable and upgrade to DirecTV. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Oh, it never gets old. All right. Is that a good argument for uh, switching to DirecTV? <laughs> Well, that would probably get me to switch to DirecTV, <laughs> but uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, one uh, one pithy term for a particular kind of bad argument is a fallacy. So uh, what kind of fallacy would this be? This is the slippery slope fallacy. You don't want to get on the slope because the slope is slippery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so slippery slope fallacy is... Uh, Roughly something like when, uh, you know, if, if you do 
A or you let A happen, and you know that'll lead to B, and that'll inexorably inexorably lead to B, and that will lead to C, and that will lead to D, and that will lead to E, and And Z is someplace you really don't want to be. So how do you avoid Z? Well, you you better not do you better not do A. You better not, because it's a slope, and the slope is slippery. <laughs> so, um, one way of, of getting clearer about uh, about this uh, might be to think about, you know, because I mean, I think the interesting part, like, okay, you can kind of see why <laughs> it's uh, it's a fallacy <laughs> if you're thinking about the uh, the argument for switching to direct TV. Uh, but um, weed is a gateway drug, exactly. Yes, exactly. If you don't want to be under the bridge dead with a needle in your arm, <laughs> well, <laughs> yep. you know what to do. Yeah. Or what not to do. Sure, right, 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 right. Um, so what would be, you know, so I think maybe the more interesting, less obvious part is, you know, how to tell when this is not, you know, being uh, being committed. In other words, like, I think that, uh, something of you know, I don't know. I've wonder. I've kind of struggled with in the past with teaching critical thinking classes and stuff. This is part of the line of thought that led to the uh, first book, which uh, which I wrote that has the same name as the show. Uh, is uh, is that I I sort of feel weird about the way that oftentimes we teach fallacies in like critical thinking and informal logic classes, where it's like, okay, here's like a kind of pithy definition and some you know, and, and like some like super obvious examples and uh, see if you can kind of identify these like super obvious toy examples to test. And um, and the problem with that is that, um, you know, if people are paying attention, which not everybody does in every class, but, the, uh, but if people are taking attention and uh, taking it to heart, then... Um, then they end up like, it's like a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Like they end up sort of um, seeing these these everywhere, whether they're being committed or not, you know. Fallacy! Exactly. <laughs> that, uh, every uh, every time you cite expert opinion, you're doing the appeal to authority, fallacy, whatever, you know. So it's like, I think the, the much maybe more challenging and, and worthwhile thing to teach is like some sort of sense of judgment about... Uh, <laughs> About when, which is what critical thinking is really—a sense of judgment. <laughs> exactly. So, so do you have an example in mind of uh, of a of a case where somebody might think this is being committed, but it's not? I mean, the thing is, sometimes reasonable people can disagree mm-hmm. on whether totally. you've got a slippery slope going or not. Um, this is my argument actually against mandatory vaccinations because I don't want the government messing around with my body you know my body my choice kind of thing but you know we at back in the day we did things like mandating sterilization of crazy women and we don't want that I, you know i believe the first time you said that to me i said i think that's the slippery slope fallacy. <laughs> <laughs> but to me what makes the difference is is there evidence that a will lead to b and b will lead yeah. to c and we've already seen that done in this country. So I think we should just stay out of other people's bodily autonomy because we've seen what the government will do. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a question about whether if that happened in the past, it happened because, like, you started messing around with just a little bit of violation of the autonomy, <laughs> and before you know it, you know, you're you're going into the hard stuff. Uh, <laughs> but at the very least, uh, and, you know, we actually did an episode, uh, I don't know, months ago, years ago, who knows, all blurs together, but they, uh, uh, we did an episode where Professor Richard Wolff uh, and... Um, uh, and Bronco Markatic uh, from uh, from Jacobin came on to have a very civilized debate about vaccine mandates, you know, and um, and I think they both made good points. Uh, I, I am, clo- you know, um, yes, Jake, that is exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> there we go. Uh, but you know, uh, as as much as I'm, you know, maybe a little bit more lukewarm on that example, uh, I will at least give you that this that is an example where like z is not just like some crazy nonsense that somebody made up right z is an actual historical phenomenon so like there's a there's a um the idea that like z is a danger at least like we could argue about whether a is going to lead there right but like the idea that z is a danger doesn't come out of nowhere whereas like i don't know i remember um like 20 years ago um when the world was young uh, or at least I was. Uh, uh, you were not young twenty years ago. I was. I was. <laughs> I, was. I was in college. Don't uh, tell these people lies. <laughs> but, uh, but back then, right, like a very common, um, like a surprisingly common right wing argument. Like this is this is not like a straw man that I'm making up here. Like this is the kind of thing you would hear a lot. Straw man. That's a different fallacy. It is a different fallacy. We'll do that a different week. Uh, is. <laughs> Fallacy! It's like on what we do in the shadows. Bat! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, is that we can't have uh, we can't have gay marriage because once you um, once you throw the definition of marriage into into question, then you know who knows where that'll lead. You know, people will be marrying trees, and you know, like uh, you know, I don't like uh, people are marrying holograms now of anime characters. That's a thing. Okay. Well, I guess I guess the right wingers were right. Uh, never mind. I withdraw that example. <laughs> I don't uh, think it was a. But there is a ceremony and everything. Yeah, I don't, well, I don't, it's I don't, very beautiful. I don't think the state's going to recognize that anytime soon. <laughs> Probably uh, not. And not to, you know, if that's your deal, that's your deal, man. I mean, Rick Santorum uh, is a, who is a uh, United. <laughs> I was not. I was, I was an undergrad 20 years ago. Um, Rick Santorum, um, who is, you know, not just some random crazy person, he's a U.S. senator. Um, Ran uh, ran for president after saying this, uh, and uh, and was a competitive candidate in Republican primaries. Uh, famously said in an interview, he was talking about like, well, if we you know, give like all these rights to gay people, you know, where is that going to lead? You know, and he, he used the phrase "man on dog." Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you notice how it's only men who would be marrying their dog; it's not women. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so, you know, and if there was the whole, if we allow women to vote, then dogs are going to be voting. And I would rather have our dog voting than some of the people. That, but anyway, that is neither here nor there. Um, I mean, maybe as a woman, I am more sensitive to this stay out of my body <laughs> argument. I see, I see. You're going to bring out um, the big guns. And, uh... <laughs> no, I'm just saying it's a, it's a thing that as as far as I know, there's... You know, and I'm not saying this is a, you know, we hate women. We're trying to control women. That this is somehow women directed. It's just a fact that biological women are the ones who get pregnant. Um, 
but you know, as a, I, I don't see anyone coming after your bodily autonomy as a man. Sure. Now, perhaps one day, yeah. there there might be well, something, well, but I, right now there's I, not. I guess historically, I think probably like sterilization and stuff like that. I mean, there was some, uh, but yeah, I, I get what you're saying, right? I mean, certainly the immediate issue post Roe v. Wade, you know, um, is uh, is very much you know uh, about uh, about biological women. So yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that they, I think this would be a case where, um, where Z, right, being, uh, being the, uh, the, you know, all of the various scenarios about dogs, you know, like, uh, Z is not like a, you know, it's not even like, okay, is A really going to lead there? It's also like, why would that happen? That doesn't, you know, that's, there, there are a lot of places you could get off, uh, the, uh, the boat, in between, and there are, you know, perhaps. But are you on the boat or are you on the slope? There we go. That's the that's the maybe, maybe it's a sled. Right? A sled. <laughs> it's going. It's going. Have you ever read Calvin and Hobbes? You can't stop those sleds. I, I used to love Calvin and Hobbes. So not that I <laughs> ever stopped uh, enjoyed it, but I haven't read it in a long time. Should read a daily Calvin and Hobbes. That's my life advice. I give my students life advice all the time. Usually something that's going on that's frustrating me, and I come in, I'll put my stuff down, I'll be like. Life advice, y'all. And then I'll, so that's my life advice for today. Read Calvin and Hobbes daily. All right. Fair enough. Well, on that note, uh, <laughs> we are going to end the main show. I'm going to go to uh, the uh, the post game uh, with uh, Jake and Andy and Dr. Kuba from uh, This is Revolution. So, uh, Revolution! Check, yes. Uh, check that out. Uh, love it when you do the Espanol. Uh, <laughs> it's El Espanol. Um, love it, uh, but uh, but yeah, the uh, uh, if you are not already, I'll give them an argument patron. Um, you can you go to patreon.com slash Ben Burgess, uh, five bucks a month. You get a patron exclusive post game after every regular Monday night episode. You get access to the Discord server. Sometimes we do other bonus episodes. Uh, I think we're going to try to do another movie night soon. We haven't done one of those in a while. Uh, but most importantly, uh, you get our eternal love and gratitude for uh, for helping to uh, keep this thing going. So if you like what we do here, uh, do consider doing that. If you're already a patron, you should have gotten an email a while ago with the link uh, for the post game. I will see people then. Team Snoopy. Para siempre. Left is best. Left is best.